0: A little bit of a a warning as we get started. Romans chapter 13 is about how Christians should respond to governing authorities. It's about the way you and I might respond or should respond to orders given to us from the outside. It is about how Christians with a strong moral compass and an ethic that's been put in place should navigate a world where often decisions that are coming down from government don't make sense to us. Worse than that, they seem to be counterintuitive, they may be difficult, and all the while trying to honor God according to what Romans 13 says. Not to invite sympathy in any way, but I might just say to you there are some Sundays where I can't wait To stand up and to say, this is what the Bible says, let's all rejoice in it. And then there are days like today. Some people have a gift for saying the thing that needs to be said, the thing that's difficult. In other words, there are lots of people who are really, really good, not only zoologists, but they're elephant identifiers. You know those kind of people? They're in the middle of the conversation and you're just watching them and you know that they're waiting to say the one thing that no one else wants to say. You know that kind of person? I'm not that person. Every time that that happens to me where I say the the wrong thing that should be said, I feel terrible about it. I remember one time... I bumped into some friends that I hadn't seen for years and years. It was uh, one of my best buddies in high school and his mom. And one of the things that I knew about his mom is that she had a lovely little dog that was a companion for her, and they would just gotten it as a puppy, and they were celebrating it. And so when I bumped into them, the whole time that I was talking with them, I was trying to rack my brain and be loving and say the right thing to the mom. And so, of course, the thing that I came up with was, hey, how's, and I said the name of the dog, I bet he's just a bundle of joy, and then in that exact moment, the entire room iced over like a Sprite commercial. And I thought something happened here. And I said the wrong thing in the wrong moment. You see, what I didn't know is the context is the day before she had accidentally backed over that dog in the driveway of their house. So she begins crying and there's mascara everywhere. And now my buddy's looking at me like, you monster, you know, how did you do this? And the thing is, is that I just said the wrong thing. I introduced the wrong topic at the wrong moment. Tensions were high. Emotions were everywhere. And I don't like that. I feel terrible about it to the point that I can still feel what that was was like. And sometimes, because we're committed to the Word of God and because we're walking through Scripture with what it says, it can feel like I'm about to say something like that. You see, we're in the midst of perhaps the most divided, the most hotly debated, the most highly energized political debates and situations that we've been in for for years. Now, I have a suspicion that perhaps we we always identify the current moment as the one political hotbed issue. So that may be a, a, a detriment of our time that we always think now is different, but I do believe that in some ways now is different because if you said, what is one topic that has caused stumbling or been difficult to talk about for Christians over the last couple of years, it would be government. How do we obey? What's right? When do we push back? Is this rebellion or is this civil disobedience? Is this being a good citizen or a bad citizen? And then more than that, not only are we having difficulty talking about it, but there is much judgment back and forth. Churches using other churches as examples of what of what disobedience or pride looks like, those same churches then saying, no, 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 that's what the cowardice looks like. And the amount of vitriol in the current church-state-government discourse is really high. And my guess is that for many of you, you've felt it. For a couple of years now, when you've encountered someone new or been in work or social or family environments, You know that there are certain things you should kind of tiptoe in, unless you're the zoologist who identifies elephants, and then this has maybe been your playground. You just can't wait. You just bring it. Well, I say all of this because this passage in Romans 13, though not planned for this particular moment, though it is here because we have been discussing Romans all the way from the beginning up until now, I believe is extremely apt for our current moment. So I'm going to read it, verses 1 through 7. We're going to pray, and then I'm going to give three principles of authority, three principles of government, and a posture. Three principles and a posture. That's our goal for the morning. So first verse of Romans chapter 13, let's look at it together. I'm going to read down to verse 7. Here's what it says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's take a moment and pray together. God, thank you for being other. You're not like us. You see what we can't see, you know what we can't know, you are wise in ways where we are foolish, and you are in complete and utter control. We thank you for being the standard of all things. And God, I'm also so grateful that not only are you other, but you've spoken, you've drawn near. And I pray now, especially as we look at this beginning of Romans 13, that you would help us to discern and to understand your will for our lives, your desire. What is it that you would have us do to be pleasing to you? In the same way, God, I ask that you would give us an ability to discern our own hearts, our own minds. Help us to see where pride has blinded us. Help us to see where cowardice has made us unfaithful. And God, I pray that in all of our thinking together and all of our praying and all of our reading of Scripture, that you would make us more like Jesus, who is King forever. So we need you, Holy Spirit. Good Father, give the good gift of your Spirit to us. We pray for comfort. Pray for conviction. I ask a blessing on everyone who has gathered. Thank you for this unique gathering of those who are in Christ. We want to be honoring and pleasing to you, and I pray you'd shape us now by Scripture. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe I'll just say some of the questions... I said it's difficult for me to be the elephant identifier, so maybe I'll just identify some of them. Here's some of the things you may think about on a morning like this. Should we mask or not? Should we gather in groups of less than 100 or not? Should we social distance or not? Should we let the government vaccinate us or not? Should we pay exorbitant tax rates or not? What is an exorbitant tax rate? Should we support wars or not? Should we vote for this human being or not? Do moral flaws and problems in a leader mean that you cannot support them or are we more pragmatic than that? Should we and can we use force in pursuit of things that we know to be good? How forceful should we be about the debate or the concerns concerning abortion? I mean, these are some big questions. They're not small. They get to the very heart of where we're living and what's going on. And so for us to be spoken to by Scripture in these things, I believe, is a gift from God. So that down through the ages, every Christian who has had to live underneath and in the midst of this mixed world of two ages, the kingdom has come and we're living according to the ethic of Jesus it's broken into the real world, but we are struggling and striving against the rulers and authorities of this age. How do we navigate? And in response to this, not with specific advice, Romans 13 doesn't tell us what we should do with the polls in the fall. It doesn't tell us when it... When Protest turns into disobedience. It doesn't tell us exactly which mandate to avoid or which one to joyfully approve. It doesn't tell us the specifics of it, but it is going to give us some principles to live by. Perhaps a grid, a kind of triage might be possible because of what is taught here in Romans 13. So I'm going to start by giving them. These are the the principles as I see them, at least from this portion of Romans 13. Paul seems to be saying at least these three things. That all earthly authority is derivative. It is derived. It is secondary. It is... All earthly authority is secondary. It is underneath a greater authority. That's the first principle. Second, all earthly authority that is in place is placed there by God and by design. By God and by design. That seems to be the second principle. So all earthly authority, in whatever spheres, derivative, secondarily, all authority that is put in place is put there by God's design. And then finally, we need to consider the fact that there are principles of authority and government in front of us, that though we may not see it now, and it may take some faith, we understand and believe that all authority that is derivative and been there placed by God and by his design will be accountable to God in the end. That there will be an accountability for all authority and responsibility taken up in this world. That authority and responsibility will ultimately be placed before God and judged whether or not it was a faithful servant. So authority, all authority in this world anyway is derivative. Second, all authority in this world has been placed there and designed by God and finally, all authority will be accountable in the end. Those are the principles, I think, that Paul's teaching in the beginning of Romans 13. And all of those principles are serving the one big posture, the posture that he believes that a Christ-honoring person will live with, and there is a posture of submission, a posture of subjection, a posture of believing and walking humbly. So that's, that's the posture. Posture is Humility. So let's talk about these things one by one. They're pretty clear from the text. I don't think that's the problem. This is going to be one of those texts where the problem is not the clarity of the words in front of us, but the application afterward in the way that this has looked. So the beginning of this says, in verse 1, extremely clearly, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This has been a consistent and understood Reality in all of Scripture. Ironically, it's even been understood in moments of disobedience. I'm going to show you Daniel chapter 2. You guys all know, know the story of Daniel and his friends. They're off in exile. They are commanded to interact with a foreign government in a foreign land, and they're asked to do things, some of which are not a problem, others of which are sort of in a middle ground of conscience for compromise, and then some things they're asked to do, they say absolutely not but we get a theology lesson in the middle of Daniel interacting with them. Daniel, trying to figure out what to do in this situation, has a dream, and he gets excited about it because God has revealed something to him. He's talking with his friends. He says this in Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 20. He answered and he said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Daniel says clearly, the same thing that Paul is saying here at the beginning of Romans 13, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God is not only capable of doing this, but he does so. So therefore, these kings who are set up are derivative. They're secondary. They're underneath his control. No matter how much control someone is instituting in an earthly environment, it is underneath and been designated because of the greater control of God over all things. Jesus himself demonstrates this. Now he takes a very different application than Daniel does. Daniel, who ends up in perhaps the Bible's greatest story of civil disobedience, tells us that God is in control of all authority, therefore it's derivative underneath him. And Jesus teaches us the same thing, though he will be the greatest exam- example in the history of the world, perhaps of non-civil disobedience, of being obedient, yes, even to the point of death. That's Jesus' example, but he says this in John 19 in exchange with Pilate. Pilate says to Jesus when he's being, well, how would the British say it, cheeky, he's, uh, he's not responding He's not giving a straightforward answer. So verse 10 of John chapter 19, Pilate said to him, "'You will not speak to me? "'Do you not know that I have authority to release you "'and authority to crucify you?' "'Jesus answered him, "'You would have no authority over me at all "'unless it had been given you from above. "'Therefore, he who delivered me over to you "'has the greater sin.'" Jesus puts Pilate in his place and reminds him, before you start, uh, what's that bird with the, (laughs) A a peacock, before you keep peacocking around with your authority to crucify and your authority to release, don't you realize that you would have no authority whatsoever unless God had determined and deemed to give it to you from above? He puts Pilate in his place. And this kind of humility must be at the heart of all earthly authority. If earthly authority goes wrong, it is often because this has been forgotten. Drunk with power is a real thing. And what it means more or less is that the person with power forgets that what they have is a stewardship. And underneath, a greater authority. All authority is a derivative. And this means that these kinds of authorities can, throw, can be in a bunch of different areas. I think Abraham Kuyper, who's a, he was both a, a theologian, pastor-type figure, as well as a political leader, wrote helpfully about what he called spheres of authority. It means that there have been given, it seems that God has given authority to courts and law systems. He's, been given, he's given authority to armies and to rulers. He's given a certain kind of authority to families and parents within that family structure. He's given certain kinds of authority to churches in the way that they govern themselves, in the way that they either receive or excommunicate people according to their standing in Christ. And these spheres of authority, every single one of them, is underneath this greater idea that God is the one who is in control of all things. Now, how these earthly authorities interact becomes the question Because sometimes these derived authorities will be in conflict with one another. They will battle the most common or the the biggest one that seems to be the question. It's the one at the heart of Romans chapter 13 is, how does the state and the church interact? If both have derived authority from God, if both have certain areas or spheres in which they are supposed to rule with a kind of authority in the world, then how do they interact with one another? One another. It can be pointed out that there have been at least, at least, and this is underneath, if you had the subcategories of each of these, and perhaps some that we can't even imagine are not recorded by history, there would be dozens and dozens. But I'm going to point out four big picture ways that the church and the state have tried to interact over this derivative secondary authority. Erastianism. Is a phrase that essentially means the state completely and utterly controls the church. It is a state-run church. This has been common throughout history. It still exists today in our world, most of the times to terrible results. But the idea then is, okay, God has placed a state in because they're the one that rules the provision and the resources and the land and has the army. They'll be the ones that control the church. Erastianism, a state-run church. Secondarily, the church and state, as they've fought over how do we deal with derivative authority, there have been attempts at theocracy, where the church says to the state, how dare you? You're just taking care of the grain and the wheat, but we have spiritual things, the realities of truth, and in a theocracy, the church runs the state. This has also been tried often throughout history and continues and persists in places down to this day. One of the most famous examples of this kind of thing took place in Geneva shortly after the Reformation. I was reading a book recently where it described a book of, of disobedience and, and issues that more or less sounded criminal, but what I realized that they were was a listing of church excommunications and a listing for all the crimes that had been committed. Some of my favorite in there. Many cases, dozens and dozens of cases over years of people being excommunicated from the table for improper dancing. Dozens and dozens and dozens of people being separated or excommunicated from the Lord's Supper for Catholic behavior, which is just hilarious to me. There have been also many, many recorded cases. In fact, This was interesting to me, more than 25% of the cases in Geneva for those people who were disciplined and not allowed to come to the Lord's table, more than 25%, more than one in four over the course of 10 years, the greatest issue causing someone to not be able to come, quarreling, fighting amongst Christians, difficulty getting along, being not peaceable. So that idea of theocracy has not only been tried, but we have records in our own traditions of here's what this could kind of look like. Erastianism, theocracy, a third one, Constantinianism, which is what Rome was headed toward. So he's writing to Rome in this, in the first century, by the third century, they take on a different form of state and church relationships, and that is where the state doesn't perfectly control the church, and the church doesn't perfectly control the state, but the state favors one church over another. So Christianity was greatly, greatly favored. And in return, it must be said, the church made compromises and accommodated itself to the will of the state. Finally, and perhaps what is more common to you, what you might be reading the lens, or through the lens of here this morning is what we might just call an idea of a partnership. The idea that church and state have differing spheres of authority and therefore should be mutually respected and though they should inform one another... They should more or less stay out of one another's business. I'd say that much of the modern world views this derivative authority in this way. And whenever there are arguments or difficulties or disagreements, it is often about this. There are people who believe that the church should stay in their lane, that nearly everything that happens that seems moral or religious in any way is decried as, keep your religion out of my life. On the flip side, there are people who are in churches who even the slightest interference or decision or inconvenience by the government is decried as an ungodly, messing with spiritual things. These are often the kind of people who refuse even the slightest cooperation with what they deem to be evil or something outside of their church's control. Suffice it to say, though Paul wrote so clearly in the first century, we have had a couple thousand years of stumbling and fumbling and bumbling our way to figuring out how is it that we obey Scripture, how is it that we hold dear the gospel, the things that have been given to us, and interact with these other authorities that seem to be around us. And all the while, I would say that no matter what experiment has been tried, the principle here that must not be let go of is that whatever situation that we're in or whatever authority that we're bumping up to, these are all a stewardship from God and have been given by him. Now, I don't know how much you love this kind of stuff. After missionary Adventurous for a few years, I knew that I wanted to go to seminary and I went back to school. And at the time, there were all kinds of political debates raging. I didn't know it at the time, but one of the things that was leading me was taking place right here in good old Tallahassee, Florida. It was a few years after, just in the, the aftermath of Bush v. Gore. And I became enamored by political process read all the books, thought I knew every single thing possible, became very adamant with the people around me about how they should posture themselves and what they should do or shouldn't do, got really, really big into fiat, money, and currency, and you know what I mean. Are you that person right now? Or do you know those kind of people? made me study political science as an undergrad and get an MPA in public administration because this, I thought, was the great answer to life, to figure out how the state and the church interact, and we need to be informed. I would say that I have been humbled over the last 15 years in knowing exactly what this should look like and now being in a place with secondary derivative authority as given by God in a a church, as, as a church, I mean, how do we collectively wield this? It is not always clear. It really is not always clear. And so I'm grateful for principles like this. Principle number one, remember your secondary, remember your derivative, and that God is ultimately in control. Second, here's a principle. Though it does not look like it, God's design for authority, it is... It is his plan, it's been placed by him, and it's for our good. Now you might say, this one, you had me up to here, I like all the thought about political theory, you had me right up to right here, but this is really hard to see. How could it possibly be that God has placed authority in my life and it is for my good when they're just so bad? There are definitive evils There are definitive things that press against what we know God has given us. How could it possibly be God's design for these authorities to be in place? And at this point, before we complain too much or believe that this is an impossible task just for us, because of our unique context, I think it's worth remembering, what would someone in Rome have thought reading this? If you were an adult, if you were you right now, if you work in computers, you were an abacus, whatever you were doing, Imagine you were you right now but you're in Rome and this circular letter starts coming around your little part of the church in Rome. And it's getting passed around and you know the apostle Paul has spoken and he's written and you come to this what would you be thinking when the phrase says every person be subject to the governing authorities. What were the governing authorities? If it went on and he said that these have been there and they've been instituted by God and that he is God's servant for your good. Romans 13 just said that those have been instituted by God are for your good you would have perhaps some struggle to think that this was actually God's loving design because if you think our political leaders are a bit of a mess, let me give you a couple examples. If you dug around in your closet for the campaign pins, if you drove around your horse cart and saw the campaign bumper stickers, here's maybe some of the names you would see. Emperor Caligula 31 AD to 42 AD, these would have been adults who said like, oh yeah, I remember those days. The governing authorities in front of them were ruled by a man who for the most part was completely and utterly maligned for some of the most insane things. Surviving historical records tell us that for the first little while of his rule, everything seemed pretty normal, and then slowly more and more insanity came out, until the point that by the time he had been run off and was dead, he was presented as, and I quote, he was presented as someone whose rule could be focused upon with cruelty, sadism, extravagance, sexual perversion, and presented him as an insane tyrant. Here are some of the things that Caligula seemed to have been involved in, as the ruling emperor of Rome. He apparently had not one but three incestuous relationships with his sisters, often not hiding them, but proud of them. He spent Roman people's taxes, some of them in absolute destitute poverty, for insane projects, for vain glorious homes for himself, and also seemed to enjoy sending military groups off on completely illogical missions with no purpose. The guy was playing Risk in real life. Well, except not how I play Risk. I always play it logically and to win. But the terrible players that I play, that was Caligula. And perhaps the most insane of all, Caligula was said said to have such a special relationship with his horse that he built it a special palace, assigned servants to the horse, had people come in and officially make the horse a priest of spirituality and religion, and threatened to make the horse a part of the Roman Senate, to have his horse be a sitting member of the Senate. Josh Hughes talked to me about a, uh, a great little dad joke in the midst of all this. You know, I think Caligula had all the power in the world, so he easily could have put a horse in the, his horse in the Senate. The problem is, is that it would have been an obstructionist presence. Because after all, every bill that got put forward, he could only vote nay. <laughs> See what I'm saying? So... Imagine, now there are many people who believe that like, tell me if this doesn't sound normal, that like most political ages, that much of this was likely true, though by the time he was gone, in order to malign his memory and to make it as extreme as possible, there were likely fictionalized and exaggerated examples of some of his inadequacies, quirks, and terrible perversions. Either way, all that he did wrong and terribly, or the fact that in, in post-his-rule kind of days that people exaggerated for the sake of their own gain and loved to think of their ruler as more terrible than he really was, makes me think, wow, they probably had it worse than us, or at least we should be able to relate. So that is one ruler. Caligula. Perhaps most near and dear might have been the, the ruling emperor of the time, Nero. Nero is well known for his complete and utter disregard for human life. His mother seems to be the one who orchestrated him coming into power through a series of suspicious or ongoing deaths, including... Nero's own father, his mother's husband, who came in and ruled for a short period of time, but was likely poisoned by his own wife. Nero was then put into power and, within a short little while, participated in the murder of his own mother, as well as many of his stepbrothers and close siblings or anyone who would come near to him in power. Nero also seemed to enjoy using the power of Rome not for its furthering or advancement, but for his own delight. He was said to have wanted to create a great palace that would have rivaled anything or that would have put to, to death really anything without rival anything that had been Rome so far. And so in order to clear land for this to take place, he likely set Rome ablaze and watched much of the city burn, doing nothing. When rumors got around afterward that the Roman citizens who had suffered and lost so much had actually done so at the, the hands of their own ruler, he had to find a convenient scapegoat. And so Tacitus records for us this, "...in order to stop the rumor, Nero falsely charged with guilt and punished, punished with the most fearful tortures the persons commonly called Christians." who were generally hated for their enormities. This is a non-Christian historian writing about this. It's very interesting to see the perspective. He goes on to say, Christus, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, who was the procreator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. But that pernicious superstition, which was repressed for a time, it broke out yet again. Not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but also through the city of Rome, whither all things horrible and disgraceful flow from all quarters, as to a common receptacle and where they are encouraged. Isn't that interesting? Tacitus is writing about the spread of what he calls a pernicious superstition. This is the reality of the early church on missionary endeavors reaching all the way to Rome. He goes on, though, and he says that these Christians, being scapegoated, were first arrested. In fact, all of those who confessed that they were Christians were arrested. And then on that information, a vast multitude of them were convicted. Not so much on the charge of actually burning the city, as much as simply hating the entire human race. That's what Christians were charged with, hating the human race. Tacitus goes on and says that in their very deaths, they were made the subject of sport. They were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs or nailed to crosses or set fire to... And when the day waned, they were burned to serve for evening lights. Nero offered these Christians indiscriminately into places of sport where they would be ripped limb for limb by animals. So if you're here this morning and you read Romans 13... And you say to yourself, well, I don't know, this is a tall task. How can I believe that authority has been instituted by God and it's for my good? They just don't know our context. Have you seen our democratically appointed leaders lately? And I just want to invite you to realize that the difficulty of this text would have landed far more severely in the hearts and minds of those who first read it. Paul is not naive. He understands the depth at which human authority can go wrong, can go sideways, and can absolutely be evil. And yet, he does not shrink back from the reality that a Christian living in the midst of a place like this should remember and have a kind of faith that says, yes, even in this moment, what God has put in place over me is by his design. And to disobey, Romans 13 goes on, to resist, he says in verse 2, to resist these authorities that have been put in place will be to risk or to incur judgment. Now part of this is not because of those who are individually in power in any given moment, But because that underlying all secondary authority, there is an ideal, there is a reason that God puts these things in place. There is a principle of authority that is good and must be held onto. And if we reject the idea altogether that God has both given authority and it's by good design, then we will start to have utter chaos in the world. This is why we have the third principle. Not only that all authority is underneath God's and secondarily that all authority that's in place is by his design for good, but that ultimately authority will be accountable to God as a servant. Because ideally, those who are put in authority will serve the good of the people in some of the following ways. Romans 13 says that they are a terror to bad conduct. Now that's an interesting phrase, and wouldn't that be a delight? Wouldn't that be wonderful? If all we could say about government is, let me tell you about government, they're a terror to bad conduct. Not to good. He says, "If you are those who do good, then you have nothing to fear. For if you do good, then you will be in alignment with a government that is set in order to do good, for those who are doing good. Further, he says that authority in this world that's been given by God is supposed to be a servant for good by bearing the sword. He says they do not bear the sword in vain. This is likely at least two things in view. They are to be perhaps a standing army, those who would ward off evil or take over from people around, and even perhaps more likely than that, bearing the sword as in ultimate punishment for those who would do wrong. Further, it seems as though the government is put in place for our good in The reality that they take resources and help to pay for things that should be for the common good, things that everyone knows, perhaps things like how to bear the sword or punish the evildoer. And in the midst of all of this, we should have a desire to listen Because God's design for authority is good, and this must be said over and over and over again, because all of us, whether we're aware of it or not, have inside of us some kind of a desire to be free from authority. Many of us have never gotten over our inner toddler. Many of us live our entire lives compromised to the point where, if we could, we would constantly say, you're not the boss of me. But you're not the boss of me. And I can say this confidently because in many ways, this was the first sin. Adam and Eve had to face a decision in the garden. Either they would follow God's rules or they would not. They came to the conclusion that God was withholding from them. They wanted to be their own boss. Therefore, they said to God, you're not the boss of me. And ever since that moment, humanity has struggled with this exact fact. We are oftentimes proud of heart, resistant to authority, believe that any structure or authority in place is there to harm or to bother. But that's not what scripture says. Christians are those who hold on to an ideal for authority, who understand the structures of the world, who believe that A rejection of chaos is a good thing, that God has made an ordered place, that one day in heaven everything will be perfectly in order, where all rules are followed and authority is complete and absolute, and that will be perfection. We are not those who continually undermine and pretend that authority is not even a necessary evil. You know, that's the funny part. There are some people I meet who I believe that their discussion of government is essentially, well, you know, it's a necessary evil, so I'm not bothered by it. There's plenty of other people that I've encountered who basically just say this. Government is evil. It's not even necessary. Now, it may very well be that those who are in power are not doing what is good, but it's not God's design. God is the one who came up with authority. He put these things in place, and we have to reckon with it. The hope that we seem to have is that because God has an ideal, he has a standard for authority, they'll be held to an account. Remember the end of Romans 12? He says that God's going to avenge. I will not let things go by. I will avenge, says the Lord. And vengeance will come for those who are in authority as well. So what do we do? I told you there'd be three principles and a posture. How do you position yourself? What's your perspective in this day and age? Now, in this particular moment, I want to say a couple of things. The Bible in its fullness is the Word of God for us, not any one verse. You can proof text a lot of things and end up in a bad, bad spot. There have been horrible leaders who, in order to coax or coerce obedience from those who follow, have simply read this passage and said, therefore, just be quiet and don't ask any questions. The fullness of the Word of God is to inform this issue not only here. That being said, we must not pretend like we're teaching or we've come to this morning some other part of the, of the text. There is something good for us here, a posture for us to, to ponder, a perspective to have that I think needs to marinate for a little while. In order to do its redemptive work, I, need, I think we need to think on this topic. Don't come to a topic like this and then immediately find all the rest of the parts of the Bible that mean you can downplay what this says. I think that's, that's the temptation we have here, just like last week. So I want to say out loud, I know that there are many examples, like Daniel, of good and right civil disobedience. The question becomes, what is our bent? What is our auto-posture? I want to show you a couple other places in the New Testament where this is not a mistake. Titus chapter 3, writing a letter about how church should be encouraged for those who are leaders. It says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Peter writes similarly in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor, Peter says, knowing full well that Nero would be banging around in the hearts and minds of those who would read it. Maybe I'll I'll say this in in a spirit of think hopefully we're okay in a spirit of, of pointing out the elephant. I believe this means that a posture of submission and humility toward government should be the default. Christians are those who say, my default is that I want to give honor. I want to pay what is owed. I want to... Because I obey God and believe that ultimately he will hold account every authority over me, because I know these things, I want to. My default is submission and honoring, to live a peaceable life, to go with things. That's the default. And I am open to, and in painful times when conscience absolutely makes it impossible to do anything otherwise, I will obey God rather than men. That the rare thing is, I could be convinced by conscience and Scripture that this is a moment that I must... But the default is, I want to honor and to be humble. It will be painful then, and after much prayer and after much difficulty, when we disobey authority and obey God. And we must completely and utterly avoid and not be the kind of people where a default is disobedience and dishonoring, and we could be convinced if you do it really well that we should listen to the government. This is a careful line, something that will need to be spirit-wrought in us. How do we know the differences between these things? Well, I hope you have a community who can help you, not a community who foments you. I think it's one of the best reasons to be in a church where people view some of these things differently. You should be careful to put yourself in a circumstance or around people who only view these things exactly like you view them. Some challenge to you holding the pitchforks might be wise and good. Likewise, someone who isn't afraid to pick up a pitchfork every once in a while might be right and good. But the point is not necessarily what we do, but what is the posture being sought by Romans 13? This means that no matter how evil our leaders, there's an elephant thing, no matter how evil our leaders, it is never okay to deride them, to dishonor them, to make fun of them, or worse, to curse them openly with mockery. Lament over evil leadership is right and good for a Christian. Prayer for God's relief from evil leadership is good and right for a Christian. But open, joyful, parading mockery of those in power over you is simply not a Christian ethic. There's just no other way around this. No matter how good the meme is, no matter how funny the bumper sticker is, this is, I think, forbidden by Romans 13. Now this is a, a difficult word, And I know that this morning it could spawn all kind of judging across every different angle. But the reality is, is that we must submit exactly where the Word of, heart, word of God is, is difficult for us. If we don't let God speak into our day and age where things are most tense and most difficult, when and where will we let Him speak? This is a test of authority for us. Let us listen.